All right, Nehemiah. Uh, we are going through the second half of the chapter. Last week, we just looked at the first three verses in Nehemiah 1. But as we're going through this, what we would like to do, uh, typically, I think we're going to take a chapter at a time as we move through this. And it, we're considering what, what is God using Nehemiah to do to rebuild the fellowship, the, the people of God's enjoyment of his presence together. What are some big components as we can look through to kind of think what's being represented here? And I think what we, we see here is in the little heading in my Bible says Nehemiah's prayer. So the first thing that we do is in rebuilding or building a healthy spirituality is to think about prayer. And I've entitled today's message Effective Prayer. But that it comes as a discouragement even when I read that. Because what we do is we think effective prayer is when we get the result that we're asking, right? We pray for this, and it comes about. So somebody who keeps on praying for something, and it comes about, we want them praying for us about what we need because we, we're looking for the result of our prayers. But God is doing something greater in our prayer, in our prayer times, in our prayer life together because God is about us experiencing his presence. And prayer... Our, our prayers, is, it's way more than just petition. It's way more than just asking God for things. It's a lot of that. But it's about experiencing God's presence on the earth. So when the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing, does that mean that we just give, we're asking and petitioning and constantly? No, I think what the Apostle Paul is saying, that's part of it, but it's mostly don't stop experiencing God's presence every single day, all day long. And that's what God wants for his people. And Nehemiah sees that. Nehemiah has a leadership mindset to be able to say, this is what God's people need, so how do we get there? And so for our lives, building a healthy spirituality looks like effective prayer. But let's dig into that and, and figure out what exactly that means. Uh, as we journey through Nehemiah's experience in rebuilding the walls, we'll take note of the things that he did in order to pay attention to, to be an example, so to speak, in, of sorts for us as we, we seek to build our own healthy spirituality. Remember, the walls around Jerusalem provided a reminder of God's, uh, the security of the peaceful experience of his presence. The walls kept the bad guys out to keep the good of God's presence in. Now, our lives as believers, we don't have walls, physical walls. Uh, sometimes we have emotional walls that we will put up. But our, and we'll look at that more next week. But our lives as believers are about experiencing God's presence. It's what Jesus prayed for us, all of his disciples in John 17, that they may be one as we are one, and that... Their joy and our joy may be full. That's about an experience of God's presence. His oneness and that joy is about Jesus is asking the Father, may they experience us as we experience one another as Father, Son, and Spirit. We're welcomed into how God enjoys his own fellowship, his own presence. But sometimes there's a, there's a design, there's an example that we need to go by and prov to provide that peaceful experience. Uh, and the, what we looked at last week is that there is a, there's an inferior fellowship that we settle into that God doesn't want for us. And we, we begin to think that the normal Christian life is something less than what God intends for us. And when we settle into that lesser experience, it's 
a lot of times brought on by brokenness of life around us, faithlessness, fear. Fear creates an inferior fellowship. We don't enjoy God's fellowship enough. Apathy, when we just kind of are just moving through life and numb to things. Today, we want to consider the role of prayer in our spirituality. Uh, And when we think about this, it can seem elementary. Well, we already know what prayer is. That's probably not so many of us. What we struggle with is we look at prayer and we think it's worthless. Because how many things have we prayed over and, and, oh man, ached and longed for God to show up in a particular way. And we look at that still today and say, God never showed up. So rather than try to be effective in our prayer, we look at prayer as worthless. We treat it like, what's the use? So we might feel, great, Jeff, you're talking about prayer again. Oh, do, we, do we really need to talk about this again? Because then I've tried the prayer stuff. And what does God want for us? We hear uh, James 5, the second half of verse 16, says the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. That's encouraging and discouraging all at the same time, isn't it? Great. I don't have any working power in my prayers, but he says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. <laughs> what are you talking about? Elijah did the Mount Carmel thing with the prophets of Baal? That was huge faith. I'm not like that. So we begin to, we begin to discredit ourselves and we get discouraged. But what is, what's James telling us? He's a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You know what happened right after that? Elijah suffered with discouragement because the people didn't turn to God like he was hoping. His prayer, like he thought would be answered, wasn't answered. So he's discouraged. See, we want to be effective in our prayers, but Nehemiah's prayer shows us in his prayers model just like Moses prayed and just like Daniel prayed. It's really helpful a model for us, but it's not the results of the prayer that's the key to effective prayer. It's our experience in prayer that makes it effective. Are we experiencing God's presence? If we're experienced, then it's more about the effect of God's presence on us than something, than a result that we're asking from our, our petitions, our requests. When we get caught up in the result of our prayers and don't get the result, we give up. But we have to look at the first part of the promise of James chapter 5, verse 16. See, we, we kind of think about the second half, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. But look at the first one. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's about experience, isn't it? But church, listen. God wants you to be healed. He wants you to be healed. He is not ignoring pain like we try to ignore pain. We actually cause ourselves more trouble, I think. We cause ourselves more trouble because we're trying to ignore the pain of brokenness and maybe the result of our own sin or somebody else's sin on us. And we just try to ignore it, just try to move on. We're just going to just keep trying to love the Lord through it. And God's getting our attention over and over again by making life uncomfortable. Because he said, I don't want you to settle for less. I want you to be healed. 
And so part of this series and, and the Pure Heart Weekend, we, we're asking God, where are, the, where are the, the, the parts of my soul, my heart, that are not healed, that I don't even know are affecting me in ways that, that are sabotaging what I'm seeking to do spiritually or within relationships of my life? God, where do I need healing? That's the big thing we're asking because God wants so much more for us. And he wants our prayers to be the experience, the peaceful experience, the healing of his presence. And then our prayers begin to reflect more of God's heart. And we pray God's heart back to him. That's when no matter what we think the result needs to be, we say, God, you answer prayer. And I trust you. I trust you. When we pray God's heart back to him, it engages our hearts to his. It connects our hearts to his. And that's the goal of his, his goal for our experience in his presence in prayer. But prayer is our experience of God's presence here on this earth. We are the temple now. We're the house of prayer for the nations to look at and see God's people interacting with him. The temple was once a place where all the nations could go to, but now it's in us. And now effective prayer is much more uh, is much more than the power in its working. We want to see that, but effective prayer is the ongoing, peaceful, joyful, soul-satisfying experience with God in his presence. An effective prayer, which is the experience of his presence, it requires investment of time, strength, resources. It calls for our investment. So our big concept to unpack with this prayer is this. The contours of Nehemiah's prayer help us understand how to experience God in our prayers in order to expect great things God from him. Expect great things from God as we obey him. So let's look at Nehemiah's prayer. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly. Against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're out, though you're outcasts in the utter parts, uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. God, we ask that you would help us understand what you're going after in Nehemiah's heart so you can go after the same thing in our hearts to experience the healing that you desire. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And the first thing we see, there's four things that we see in this prayer. One is that Nehemiah looked up, he looked inward, he looked back, and he looked forward. He looked up. He went to God first. 
Nehemiah went to God with his despair and the brokenness that he was hearing about in Jerusalem. But notice, he didn't go to people first. We struggle with this. We usually take our problems to other people before we take them to the Lord. It doesn't mean that we don't take them to people. It means we take them, because when we go to the Lord, we take them to people who will help us with a solution. And it, it, it prevents us from just complaining and maybe gossiping about the Lord to other people. But Nehemiah goes before the Lord. He is broken before the Lord. And he continues in fasting and in prayer. It says for days. And when we look at when he received the word, the month of Chislev, and then the, the beginning of chapter 2, those days added up to four months. He spent four months before the Lord fasting and praying and asking and saying, God, what do you sense? What do you feel? What's your desire? What's your word say? This, this was a long time. This is, this is steadfastness in prayer. This is endurance. This is persistence. And don't we all need persistence in our prayers? We need those. We need a, a persistence that is grounded in capturing God's heart for ourselves personally. God, what's your heart for me? What's your, what are you stirring in me? What are you doing in me that I need to pay attention to? What attribute of you are you wanting me to connect to so I trust you more? We need to be persistent and grounded in capturing God's heart for us as a church and for our gospel mission together. God, how do you want to use us? So to look up is, go to, is to go to God first, but it's also to rehearse the wonder of God. Nehemiah recounts the attributes of God. Great and awesome. You are great and awesome and you keep covenant with your people, even when they don't keep it. And your steadfast love, you keep steadfast love towards your children. We see this example in Moses. When Moses were, uh, God had God's uh, character revealed to him, he prays that back to God. And Daniel does the same thing. But I ask a question, this is a God, and his attributes show up to a, a finicky and fickle people. But why do we need to rehearse these? Does God need the reminding of who he is? Is he so mad that he needs to be talked off the ledge of his wrath toward us? Does he need some kind of schmoozing and playing to his ego so he'll be favorable to us? To give us an answer that we want? Why do we do this? God knows exactly who he is. So why rehearse his attributes to him? Because we need it. We need the reminder of his attributes. We're the ones who need the reminding because we are fickle and finicky in our approach to life and to him. We need to be reminded of God's covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love that he will never let us go. And he will always do good to us. We, we're the ones that think he's mad. We're the ones that think he needs, uh, he needs some schmoozing, some buttering up to get what we want. No, we think he's mad at our moral failure, our sins. We think he's mad at our spiritual brokenness. No, I'm too broken to go to God. That's where we, we mess with our own minds. 
but we recount his wonder and his awe. So our hearts are captured by his love. We become more convinced of it as we pray it to him. And when we're captured by his love, that's when Jesus says you can ask anything, anything, and it'll be done for you. That's a powerful statement that I still have not figured out. If you abide in me, Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me, if you are in my presence and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What does that mean? I don't know. But I I really want to search it out. I really would like for us to be there. To be captured by God so much that, that the... Oh, man, that the the words that are coming out of our mouths, God is saying, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But it comes from that experience of his presence. But here's a reminder. See, God is, uh, Nehemiah is asking God to be attentive. And that's that's not a please be attentive. That's, That's another recognition that he is attentive. Like, God, you have said you're attentive. You pay attention. Pay attention now. God wants us to experience his glorious presence. And he, he's inclined. He's leaning in to our prayers, to our experience. He's not recoiling like we sometimes feel he is doing. Psalm 34, Psalm 116 remind us of this. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Psalm 116, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. He's looking to us. He's leaning in. He wants our experience in his presence. And listen, y'all, he wants to answer our prayers. As much as we think he's withholding and we haven't said the right thing or live the right way to get the answer, he wants to answer our prayers. We know what he wants more than that. He wants us to experience his love. And he wants us to experience the healing heart of his covenant faithfulness to us. Nehemiah is asking God to be attentive, to remind himself of God's promise that he hears our prayers. And God's promise is restoration for those who repent. When we say things out loud in prayer, we get more convinced of God's attentiveness. And that's why we say it. We say it. I I appreciate a Kiva reading. Is it Psalm 127 that you read? Oh, cool. I just... That's why I was confused. Like, wait a minute. That's a combination. That was awesome. Because we're just recounting God's promises and his faithfulness. All right, so Nehemiah has looked up. Now he's going to look in with confession. Now, the act of confession simply means this. You agree with God. That's what it means. You agree with God on how things are. You, how things are and what they are. Now, confession involves sorrow when we've sinned, but listen carefully, confession is not equal to sorrow. You don't have to be sorry in order to confess. But hang with me. Repentance requires sorrow, and repentance requires obedience. Turn your back on sin, walk in the other direction toward God's life, his resurrection life for you. But confession is just dealing with the reality of how and why things are and how they've gotten to how they are in our lives. We are, we confess responsibility. Yep. God, yeah, I had a responsibility to do this or I was irresponsible and I didn't do that. But we also confess hopefulness for God to fulfill his purpose for our good. So we're agreeing with God. Yeah, God, 
We're in a miserable place. This is a mess. But we also agree with God, but you have a plan. You have a plan for something to use this, and you have a plan to turn this around because it, mean, it looks like and feels like evil every, at every corner, but you, you're doing something greater. You're, you're going to bring about your good. So it, we confess both the responsibility but also the hopefulness. We confess like Abraham did as he considered God's promise to give him a son. In Romans 4, he said, in hope, the Apostle Paul says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. He had nothing left. That he should become the father of many nations. As he'd been told, so shall your, your offspring be. Listen, he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Abraham looked physically, literally looked at his body and said, I'm dead. How can I have a son? He didn't ignore it. He didn't have positive thinking to overcome it. God gave the promise, and he simply said, God, you have this promise. Here's the reality that I'm living in. What do I have left? God, I have to trust you. The Apostle Paul goes on. Or, when, listen, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, this is amazing. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's confession. He was just confessing, God, you said this. Here's the reality of what I'm in. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. God, he brings dead stuff back to life. That's exactly what he did for Abraham. He brings dead things to life. Abraham didn't ignore his situation. He didn't hope that God would just do something different. He didn't wait for things to change. Abraham was honest about how things were. They were dead. It was because he was honest and real with the situation that he was fully trusting in God for the promise to be fulfilled. I think Abraham's experience in setting it up in prayer and confession was that he was able to capture God's heart in his presence to believe God for great things, even though it looked like it would never happen. Getting to the healing of our souls needs to start with getting honest about our assessment and our experience with God. In order for us to, to experience the healing that God wants for us, we have to confess, God, things are a mess, and I have no idea what to do. Then Nehemiah is confessing sin. Nehemiah confessed other people's sins. Does that mean he was sorry because he sinned? No, he wasn't even born when they sinned, and they got kicked out of Israel. So what's, what's happening? In one way... He's simply stating the obvious. Here's how things are. He's agreeing with God on how things are. The walls are broken and the people that are in exile due to their sinful unbelief. But in another way, he's including himself. Even I and my fathers have sinned. What's he going after? He includes himself because he knows the mess of his own soul can be, can be in and often tempted to be unfaithful and unbelieving to the Lord. He's confessing his own sin of unbelief. God, sometimes I don't believe. Sometimes I'm looking and it looks dead and nothing's going to come alive. But he understands that his unbelief would prevent him from enjoying God's presence. So he says, God, please be here. Now, our souls 
are in a mess sometimes, often, and need the healing that follows confession, simply saying, God, this is the way things are. Now, when we've, we've sinned personally, we understand we need to confess. And James says, confess to others. We, there is a proper response to confessing uh, in, in our desire for sorrow and repentance to move on with the Lord and the conditions of our lives that are due to our own sin. And we need to confess those sins in a, in a continual way to rest in and be washed by God's healing grace. But here's where the rubber meets the road. What about when he's confessing other people's sins? It's easier to confess the sins that we've done. But listen, Nehemiah is confessing the sins of other people that now he lives in the consequence of when he wasn't even born. He's confessing sins of people he doesn't know. Maybe that was a little easier. And we're generally okay confessing the sins of those who've not sinned against us. God, help them. They've sinned against that person. It's a bad situation. We're okay with that. But when we've been sinned against, that's where we, I think, struggle. I do. We struggle to confess that sin, agree with God with the consequences of how life is. We are to confess others' sins against us. But listen, that confession doesn't mean we're excusing the sin against us. And it doesn't mean we're ignoring the consequences of our sin. In some ways, we think that confessing it means everything goes away, goes away and goes back to normal. That's not what happens. Sometimes there's real consequences that need to be walked out. We simply confess the mess that the sin of somebody else has caused in our lives. Now, confessing other people's sins doesn't mean that they've repented. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, uh, I think we tend to withhold confession because we, we're afraid God will, will forget what they did to us. And so we hold on to something, thinking that, no, we need to hold on to this because, God, I don't want you to forget what they did. God says, I don't forget. And we hold on uh, sometimes to our, to our spiritual detriment. We hold on in a way, we hold on to other people's sins in a way that we want them to pay for how they've made us feel. But here's what happens. We're expecting the hurt that we're feeling to somehow be transferred to them. But all we're doing is growing in bitterness. You know what bitterness is? Bitterness is eating poison, hoping somebody else dies. Because you know what? And this is what irks us the most. We're miserable because of their sin, and they're walking around life happy-go-lucky, not even a care in the world. Looks like God's blessing them. We think, what is going on here? They look blessed. I'm miserable. God's saying this. Confess their sin. You're not repenting for them. You're not, you're not sorry for them. In a, in a way, you can be pained. Like, God, I'm sorry. That, here's confessing. God, they've sinned against me. Here's the reality. And I have no idea what to do. Because things look really dead. There's a broken relationship. Or there's financial consequence. It's, just, it's a mess. But when we confess that, 
we actually put ourselves, we're not holding to a punishment. We're not holding to God. I want you to get them. We're not holding to that anymore. It frees us to be able to say, God, I need to experience the healing you want for me because God wants a healing in us. So when we do interact with that person, it's on a different standard. It's a different basis. It's, it's a, a steadfast love component. Does that make sense? So when we're confessing things, we're not, we're not excusing other people's sin. We're saying, God, this is a mess that I need help in. So that's the difference how confession, it involves some sorrow but when it's personal but, and, and when it's other people. But I think the stage when we confess, we're just saying, God, this is miserable. And we'll tell other people it's miserable really fast. But you know, some of the Psalms, what do they say? God, I'm bringing my complaint to you. That was confession. And I think that's a role that maybe we don't pay attention to enough in our prayers. But we want to avoid the bitterness that sabotages what we think we want to be. We think we can get into that healing. And, and look, so this is where it gets really hard. And we'll talk about this in a, in a few weeks. Um, we think everything has to go back to normal or the way it was. And we don't quite know what to do to be able to bridge things. There might be things that can't be reconciled, can't be restored. And so you're able just before your heart to say, God, I'm not holding, and this is where the healing comes in, I'm not holding vengeance to that person because of their sin. Now, there, there, there may be some help that's needed to walk through because some, are, some sin toward us has been hugely abusive and huge consequences. We need wisdom. That's why we want to, we, we, we want to walk as pastors with you in wisdom. But if there's a need for outside help, somebody who's trained in these things, that we bring them in and say, hey, maybe there's a longer path here that we need to be able to support you as you are digging into this. Because look, when we start to turn lights on in our hearts with lights that we've left off a long time, it's uncomfortable because it brings us bizarrely. It brings us back to the very moment that we're trying to ignore. But that's exactly where God wants to bring his healing. But we need to see his character. We need to rehearse his faithfulness so we know that we are protected by him in those vulnerable moments. And it's not something we have to figure out ourselves. So that's what Nehemiah does in looking back. He's, he's rehearsing God's faithfulness in the Bible. And Nehemiah knew the Bible. He saw the character of God in the recorded history with Israel. And we too, we need to know the Bible. George Mueller, who opened an orphanage in Bristol, England uh, in the 1800s, he, he said he read through the Bible and he stored up reasons for God's intervention as he was caring for orphans. We need to have the same mining the promises of the scriptures to where we can not convince God with them, but remind ourselves that he's there and he's ready and he's inclined, he's, inclined, he's attentive, his eyes are on us. We need to see God's redemption in the scriptures. We need to mine those promises in order to treasure his love. We need to see Jesus all over the place in the word. He's all there. And the redemption of the Lord is everywhere. The, res the restoration of the Lord is everywhere, but it's always in hearts first. God wants to restore and heal hearts. 
and then it spreads out into the community of God's people, and then it's supposed to touch the nations. So Nehemiah looks back to God's word, but he also looks back to God's work because that's where his faithfulness shows up. Knowing and understanding God's faithfulness with a finicky and fickle people, it gives us great hope to continue that he will continue his faithfulness when we are those miserable, complaining, finicky, and fickle people. God's faithfulness in our past is proof that he will be faithful in our future. We sang that song earlier. God's faithfulness in our past is proof. It's not that, oh, he did that once. I guess he's not going to do that again. No, it's proof he will continue to be faithful. He will never turn away from doing good to us. Almost the line. All my life you have been faithful is what we say. I'm remembering back to when I was a boy and had no idea. When I was in second grade, um, sitting in church, and it was, it was first communion practice. <laughs> I hear this song that we had to sing and perform. And it was, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. And sitting in a dead church, uh, God grabbed onto my heart in second grade. I didn't know what was happening. I just remember thinking, we can talk to God like that? I love you, Lord. I can talk to God like that? And I don't know why this week I've been thinking, oh, it's because somebody sang that song, recorded it, and I have it on a playlist, and I was hearing that song again, and I was reminded. God, you've always been faithful. When I had no idea who you were, you, you intruded, and you invaded my space. You invaded my life to let me know of your love. And nothing I have done in my life has ever separated me from that love. That's God's doing. Because i got a list of things that I, I would say separate me from his love. But God says, I love you. And I want you to experience my healing power. He's been faithful. He's been drawing us. And he's going to be faithful every day of our lives. That's how we can look forward. We look back in order to look forward, to look ahead. God is still on mission, and his mission is not thwarted by our actions or our mindset. God is still on mission, and he wants us to, to, he wants to gather us in to that mission because our lives feel complete. Our lives are satisfied as we're on that mission with him, experiencing his presence. See, his, his mission will be accomplished with our participation or in spite of our participation. If it's in spite of our participation, we're miserable. But if if it's with our participation, that's when we feel that soul-satisfying, the the craving is, is satisfied. God, I'm living the life you have for me. And the mission of God is his people experiencing his presence in his place. God desires our wholeness as we cooperate with him on his mission. But we, like Nehemiah, being with God in his presence, got a proper perspective on his situation and the situation of Jerusalem. We need that proper perspective. And that comes from being in God's presence. 
Nehemiah experienced God's presence in prayer as he's petitioning, as he's rehearsing. And his heart was captured by this great and awesome God. And he's gotten God's perspective. And now he's ready to obey. And look what he says. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? The king. The king who at that time was was king over half the world's population. That's intimidation, right? And he's looking at this situation going how it could look dead. But he experiences something in God's presence. And and now he says now there's a wholeness and a healing that's happened in his own heart to be able to look at a king and understand how God sees that king. Not in a diminutive or arrogant way. Man, no. God, that's just a man. You're God. So you see how maybe he was intimidated first. Like, how could I go to this man? This is the same man that stopped the work of the temple walls years before. He's going to the same guy that said no already. How's that for intimidation? But he spends time with God and he gets a proper perspective. And he says, okay, God, you were the one that grants success, not the king. He's a man to you. And he's under your authority. Just like I'm under your authority. God, uh, Nehemiah, he knows God's mission for his people involves going before that same king. But now this, he's going to the, the crux of the situation. He sees God as the king over a man. This man is not God. And I think oftentimes when we are stuck in our in the perspective of brokenness and and settling for less than God's presence or uh, not understanding the fullness and experience and enjoying the fullness of what he has for us, we actually make other people, we give more authority to other people in our lives than God has. And we need to see them as, especially the ones that have hurt us, we need to see them as, that God, they're, they're under your authority and I don't want to elevate them to have power over me that you say, don't give them. I want you to have that authority over me. And that's what Nehemiah recognizes. God is the only one that holds the power and authority over Nehemiah. He's the one that holds the power and authority over us. And Nehemiah's obedience is going to be hard. But God has positioned him for this very moment. He's a cupbearer. He's not, he's not cupbearer in position. In Persia, uh, you had the king and then you had the princes that oversaw. The princes were over all the areas. Uh, the cupbearer was right under the princes. It wasn't just this menial task of tasting uh, food before it went to the king, and the king doesn't know who that is. Now, this is, a, this is Artaxerxes' trusted advisor. Nehemiah was positioned for this. He was prepared for this, to, to be in the face of intimidation, to be going before somebody who did have power over him. You're not supposed to be sad in his presence. We'll see next week in chapter 2. He's ready for this. See, he was, he was prepared positionally, but also situationally. He was trusted by the king. But God captured Nehemiah to use Nehemiah to fulfill the mission of getting God's people back in his presence, enjoying his presence in his place. That's what he wants for us, church. He wants us in his presence. And his presence is with us through the power of the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And so 
something. I appreciate Sean helping us understand what the spiritual health inventory is geared for. This is simply a, a, a starting point to say, how do we connect with one another in order to just, I think it connects us in fellowship with one another to be able to, and, and, and to position, like, where do we go from here? That's the, that's the desire. Let's, maybe we'll, we'll be able to see what type of gifting and different uh, avenues within the church that you can serve. But ultimately, there is, there's a desire for us to find out, are, do we feel stuck in patterns of life that need attention? That's what we need to find out. And so as you're filling this, and maybe you already know it, maybe you're filling this out, maybe you're terrified of this, and you're like, why? Does it have to be so personal? Can't I just come and go? No. No, we believe we're family. And we want to know one another. We want to know, what, know, know one another well enough that we, we you know, when, you, when your family, you see somebody come out of their room or sit at the table and you know something's up, we want to have that type of relationship with one another. To be able to say, all right, something's up. Let's talk. But we want to do this in a way that's going to be, this is not condemnation. And we're, we don't want to pry into everything. That's not what this is about. If you've already read some of those questions, this is not prying into the nitty-gritty details of our lives. No, 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 no. This is simply, how are you doing? And these are some questions that help us identify how we're doing. How are we doing experiencing God's presence through the word, through preaching of the word? reading the word, preaching the word, and fellowship with one another. Because those are, those are things that we still want to see happen with the church. And a, a pandemic has, has kind of redefined how churches do that. God hasn't redefined anything. He still wants those things. But we want this to be a safe place where everybody can experience the healing that God wants without condemnation and without, oh, uh, without publicity. We're not looking to publicize what people are, the issues. Like we, we want this to be a safe place for us because we want to be used by God on his mission. Amen? We want to be used by God on his mission because that's part of, of his design for us, but also how he wants us to be enjoying his presence together. So as you fill that out, uh, you can uh, make an appointment with uh, Kerr or Sean or me. Uh, ladies, Kathy's available for you. If you want to do couples, that's cool too. This is really, this is, this is easy, all right? This is not to be intimidating for us, but it is to be probing a little bit so we can have some talking points, really to love and care for one another and see that we are encouraged into Christ. Let's be reminded of our commission. We want to go and make disciples, and that means our love for one another is part of that disciple-making. Let's be reminded of Jesus' message as we have received the word, we want to go and obey the word. Uh, in verse 19 of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.